0: tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we have the high-energy, best-selling author, Oren Klaff. Oren has gone and raised hundreds of millions of dollars in capital for companies of various sizes and has strong opinions on how it needs to be done. Oren's best-selling book, Pitch Anything, has sold over a million copies and is one of the only books that I've seen that weaves concepts of strategy and neuroscience into raising capital. It also leads into his latest book, Flip the Script. A key takeaway from Oren is that raising money is not about selling your deal. It is about attracting capital. He also makes the point that when you're raising money, you need to pitch with the goal of answering objections as soon as possible. He goes on to make the point that pitching an investor is not a collaborative discovery with your audience. The reality is, is that In the time you're allotted, you better nail the points that they need to hear and do it with the confidence that is worth you getting another meeting. What I like about this interview is that Oren gets down into the details of what investors like VCs and PE investors or private equity investors are looking for. It's like a key or a code. A key takeaway is that you need to be brief and only hit the key points they care about. One example we dive into is the roller coaster of Casper mattresses. They reached a billion dollar private valuation only to fall hard into their public valuation, which is now around a quarter billion. 750 million dollars less than their final financing as a private co. We discuss how they get there. Oren's perspectives are fitting and applicable, especially when it comes to how you're positioning yourself when raising capital. This is a great episode, and given recent economic circumstances, I'd happily argue that this is even more applicable now. So enjoy the show. On the line, I have Oren Claff, who is an entrepreneur, a financier, as well as the author of a couple of great books that focus on financing and pitching yourself or selling yourself when it comes to raising capital, or I would argue life in general. So, Oren, I'm really happy that we're here. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, sure.
1: Corey, I appreciate the invite. When an invite comes through from Corey, you don't ignore it. You reply and say, how high can I jump? <laughs>
0: I'm sure that's the case. (laughs) Right on, man. Well, hey, listen, thanks so much for making the time. What I like to do is start off with a summary from yourself about who you are and what's driven your career. You've written a couple of great books, which I want to touch on, but what do you say hand it over to yourself to give us some background and we'll take it from there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know too much about myself. I raised $500 million in a pretty short period of time and people said, how did you do that? And I said, well, this is step one, this is step two, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. It's really easy. And then they went out and surprisingly, they said, that was easy. And then sort of a little reputation started building around. I was hooked up with the people from Howard Stern. I didn't like them much. I did a little bit of radio and then I met a book agent. She goes, write this in a book. I I don't want to write a book. I'm not a writer. You write it. And she goes, I'm not a writer. I'm an agent. And so, me not being a writer and her not being a writer, we went and visited uh, McGraw-Hill. And they said, this is great. Write this in a book. I'm not a writer. And they said, well, look, we'll hook you up with a guy from the New York Times. He'll show you how to write. And so, I started working with him, except he couldn't handle my bad language. Because if you work in finance, you're going to hear some bad language. So, he was not Protestant. So, he couldn't handle the bad language and he quit. But I had a book contract. So, I wrote the book, published the book. The book was called Pitch Anything, and it sold a million copies with no marketing. It is the definitive must-read manual, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, wherever you are, for how to raise capital, talk to money, plug in to the capital markets. So that's about as much as I know.
0: That's where I started out. I found that book, Pitch Anything, read it. And it's a powerful book, man, because it really lays the foundation for when you're walking in that boardroom, you better position yourself and establish the status of the CEO who's there to raise capital so they can execute their mission. And it's almost, I've said this to some companies I've worked before that The capital providers are there to help you with your business, you're not there to help them. So make that clear that you're on a mission and there's others who can give you money. So don't waste your time kind of thing. And that's something I took from that book. Can you expand on that? Because I mean, it comes with a lot of attitude. It comes with a lot of energy, which clearly you have. So can you tell us more about that? I thought that was a great takeaway for me.
1: Yeah, well, let me shrink it before we expand it. Sort of go convergent and then go divergent. The things that worked in your career, like sales and marketing and management and relationship building and communication that have gotten you to wherever you are today, with your 20, 30, 40, 90, whatever it is, and now you're going out for capital, tend to have the negative consequence, the negative intended effect when you're raising money. So the things you do to close sales blow up finance deals. The things you do to do marketing have no impact or negative impact in raising capital. The things you do to build a good relationship, a healthy relationship with your employees and your partners and your staff and your family kill relationships in capital raising. It is the upside down universe when you go from running a business to raising capital for a business. So once you discover that, then you say, now I know everything that doesn't work. Sales, marketing, relationship building, communication. And those things either irritate, annoy, frustrate, or send investors in the wrong direction. So if you know all the things not to do, then in a convergent way, then we can sort of go divergent and say, well, then what does work if everything that I know doesn't work? And so then we get into the things that do work. And the fundamental mindset is that you can't sell to money. They don't need to put the money out. They don't have a leaky roof. They don't have a leaky faucet. They don't have a problem with their accounting system. It is not a sale. You can only attract capital. That's why sales and marketing and communication and relationship building don't work, right? Because you're putting something in front of somebody to try and solve the problem. They don't have a problem. They have a billion dollars, $200 million, a billion, five, $50 million, five, whatever it is. They've got capital and they want to get it out, but they don't need to get it out. You're not solving a problem for them. So this is attraction, not sales. And once you get that in your mind, Then you combine this with the notion that capital is a commodity. It's available anywhere. So when you come in and you focus on that one source of capital that you're pitching to in a way that is inherently needy, that scares capital away because capital wants to go into stable, confident, high achieving, already moving, fast growing, successful situations not needy entrepreneurs that are going to fail potentially without the capital injection. And even companies that are stable and growing and don't actually need the capital can act needy. And so acting needy frustrates, annoys, and chases off capital investors. And the last thing to understand is you can plug into the capital markets. It is like a complicated electrical socket. (laughs) You know, if you ever go to Europe, you know, and you pull out all your American stuff and you try and put it in the wall, you go, oh, aha, this stuff doesn't fit. You need the right plug to plug into the capital markets. Once you have that plug, capital can flow to you like electricity. And that's the goal of every capital raiser is to go out, plug into the capital markets and attract capital and let capital flow to you. You don't go out and close a deal to get capital. It's not a sale that you close. So those are some of the mindsets. I don't do a lot of mindset stuff, but those are some of the mindsets that need to be baked into your approach to raising money or working with finance in any
0: way. I think that's a huge paradigm shift. And I think that anybody out there raising money or engaging investors needs to embrace that. Because like you say, there's a flow of capital and it rejects neediness. It's going to where it feels there's a sure bet. So can you kind of paint any pictures or examples of CEOs or even your experiences when you walk in and actually put that to play and go beyond the theory and take it into action?
1: Yeah. Well, I think you can, in some ways, give me an example of somewhere that you got stuck because I don't get stuck anymore. Right. Mm. So People say, hey, you know, tell me a time when you were frustrated and you had to find a fix. And I have to go back 15 years. Like when I go out for money, I get the money. In some ways, it's the deals I choose. And this is something you could tattoo on your arm. Capital flows to good deals, right? And so when you have a good deal and you're in the right market or you've created the right capital market, the capital will flow to you. But I worked on a, an Uber-like deal, Uber for women, by women. And so it's a problem, right? When you have women late at night calling up an Uber, they don't know who they're going to get. And so this is a version of Uber in a specific geography that is only women drivers for only women passengers. Hmm. And so I was helping the woman with the pitch and we get about 70% of the way through. And I say, you know, Susan, is this even legal? And she goes, oh, I always get that question, right? <laughs> I go, Okay. I've been thinking about it for 10 minutes and it's sort of been distracting me from hearing the financials and the big idea and the problem, the solution, how you do it and your technology. I'm just thinking, is this even legal? You need to move the obvious objections that you're going to get into the presentation. And mm. that's how it's so different from sales. In sales, you sort of present the product, you get the objections and the objections are the opportunity to talk about the product and customize the product and build the relationship with the buyer. In finance, there's no relationship with the buyer. The buyer needs to understand what it is, the big idea, how the markets are changing, why the markets are changing in the direction of what you do, what your solution is, how it works, the value proposition, the key assumptions you've made, the ROI in the product, the value proposition, who the team is. They need to get to the end of your presentation and not have objections, not have fundamental questions, right? In finance, there's not this Q&A period where there's the buyer or the investor trying to solve misunderstandings. The end of the presentation is, thank you, we have a question or we want to make a correlation or we want to test this assumption. Okay, now leave.
0: Yeah, thanks right. for coming. Get
1: out. Yeah, right. Here's a to-go lid for your coffee. Have a nice day. If you go to Silicon Valley, and those guys run on a metronome, if you have a meeting from 10 to 10.30, it starts at 10, and it ends at 10.29 and 6.9 seconds, and that's it. But there isn't this delightful relationship, problem solving, discovery, let me apply my solution to your problem kind of thing that most business people are used to. So if there's questions, something is wrong. So that's a good example. You know, I said, hey, Susan, what other questions do you get? And she goes, oh, we get this long list of questions after every presentation. No, those are things that need to be baked into the structure of the presentation. What is that structure? It's pretty easy for most finance products.
0: This is the crux of it. It's straight up. You're pitching. You say, here's our problem. Here's the solution. And I bet you're thinking, is this legal? And actually just hitting them, cutting their objection off at the knees right there and moving on. And you're expediting their understanding and demonstrating really your value is what I'm hearing.
1: One way that I think about it is for those people who are veterans of pitching venture capital or private equity, especially private equity. You walk in a room you get a bunch of 35-year-olds and one 48-year-old with a bunch of Moleskine notebooks, red and black notebooks, and fountain pens, and they're listening to you, and they're listening, and you're making your jokes, and you're talking about your product, and your features, and your solution, and your growth, and your SaaS, and your information integration, and your team, and everything like that, and they're sitting there listening. Then every once in a while, they grab their pen and write something in their Moleskine notebook, put their pen back down, lean back, continue listening. The reality is there's only seven things they want to know. <laughs> out of hmm. that entire presentation, you got to have the right things in the right order in the right amount of detail. It's very likely that the 60-minute meeting or presentation that you have can be done in 12 minutes to 13 minutes. We're not looking for color. I've worked on 5,000 presentations. I'll see a thousand presentations for money a year, and of the hundreds I work on during the year, the first thing I do is throw out 70% of it. Not needed. These guys are not dumb. They didn't just wake up and go, hey, I'm managing a $100 million fund. I'm managing a $500 million fund because I was a UPS truck driver, not to insult UPS truck drivers. Then I was a pizza delivery guy, not to insult pizza delivery guys. And then I was a golf caddy and now I'm managing $500 million. That's not how it works. They have seen thousands of presentations. Oh, you have a ventilator? that hospitals use, that uses Mercury Switch and has a slightly better life expectancy ratio in the market of ventilators and we're a healthcare investment firm? Got it. I don't need 35 minutes on it. It's what are the salient details that really matter to making a finance decision about your project? That's the pitch. The other stuff is coloring book material that is usually not needed. These guys are smart. They've seen this before. You're very likely haven't invented nuclear fusion, right? They understand your space. They understand what an innovation is. They understand what intellectual property is. They understand the business model. They understand the metrics and they're just trying to figure out how close to the last 50 deals that were done in your industry, in your space, how close is this to the ones that worked out, right? Say 50 deals were done and 30 didn't work and 20 worked and 10 were successful. How close are you to the 10 that were successful? That's what they're writing in that Molsky notebook, right? <laughs> not well-spoken, great story, like the slide, seems like a good company, lots of logos from customers, worked really hard, worked in my, micro- they're not writing any of that stuff down. They're looking for the matches financially, mathematically, objectively, quantitatively to the deals that worked out.
0: Now. How does that change from the different kinds of investors? I mean, I can picture that certainly along the way with a VC investor. I can picture that to some degree, perhaps, on private equity and Wall Street bankers. They'll want to know, they'll want to perhaps talk more metrics. But I would argue that there's some investors who are looking for story, some who are looking for a great pitch that does have color.
1: For how much money?
0: Well, I think the question would be, what's that spectrum? I mean, friends and family are going to give you a check just because they think you're cute or they're like, oh yeah, that's nice, on your way. Or if you're raising 500 million bucks, you can't be talking that same way. So how does that spectrum change? How does the approach change across different kinds of investors?
1: Maybe think about the pitch like this. It's a key or it's an unlock code. Corey, uh, you're probably not old enough to have ever played video games with cheat codes. But,
0: oh no! I remember Contra. Okay.
1: Yeah, right there you go. <laughs> Splinter Cell, right? Metal Gear Solid. You know, had cheat codes: up, left, triangle, circle, hold down two seconds. You know, snap your knees together and press the red square, and you get another three lives. You are yep. looking for that code, right? And it exists for every kind of investment. Give you an example: if you haven't heard me say this before, go to Sequoia's website. On the front page of their website, they have the unlock code for their money because they got so sick of people coming and saying, hey, look, we have a fire engine, you know, metaphorically, right? You know, we have a company that does like the fire engine and Sequoia goes, great. We want to invest in fire engines right now. They don't invest in fire engines I'm just, you know, as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And then you hand them a box and they go, great. And they look in the box and they just see 6,000 fucking Lego pieces, right? (laughs) wait, you said you had a fire engine. They go, yeah, see you snap these together and the red ones and the blue ones and here's the instruction manual. And if we just had $3 million, this would be a fire engine. So they got sick of looking at that and they just published what they want to see on their front. You just download it, right? And what is it? The vision, the mission, the team, the traction, the value proposition, the technology, who's the technical founder and what the user growth is. That's it, like seven or eight pages. And so that's the unlock code for Sequoia to give you a million to $3 million, right? So you can come in with story, you can come in with fantastical elements in an hour, but they'll fund you exactly the same in seven minutes as you just go through that code of material. Now, if they give you $3 million because you pitched the right information in the right order, exactly what they were looking for in the right amount of detail, And you have the credibility, you have the traction, you have the technology, you have the technical founder, you have the vision, you have the big idea, and you have the user growth. They fund you. Great. Now you say, okay, let's say you're in COVID and healthcare and whatever it is. Now you go to the National Institute of Health and you give that, that pitch worked at Sequoia. You give that exact same pitch, right? Vision, mission, technical founder, user growth. And you know what they say to you? Hey guys, this is great. Get the fuck out of here, right? This is not what we do. Right? So, for a different kind of investor, it is a different kind of unlock code for debt, for mezz, for senior, for junior, for venture capital, for C, for A, for C. It is a different unlock code to get their money. Now, it's all based on the same formula, which is how are things changing today? How are things changing? Why are you in the path of growth? By the way, and a couple assumptions and a pro forma and a cap rate, you're raising money for real estate, Okay how are things changing? Why are users shifting away from Microsoft and Facebook and Google to your platform? Right there, you're raising seed money for a platform application. And so what's the big idea? How are things changing? What's the problem that you solve? Why is that problem hard to solve? Until somebody believes that what you do is hard, that's why they ask, hey, what intellectual property do you have? They're not asking what intellectual property you have. I worked in intellectual property for years. I went around to Sandia National Labs, to UCLA, USC, Lawrence Livermore, looking at base at MIT, at the Jet Propulsion Lab, looking at base level patent applications. And let me tell you something about IP. You don't have IP. IP is something Qualcomm has. Mm-hmm. It's 20 or 30 patents in a patent portfolio that can truly prevent Magnavox or Fujitsu or Mitsubishi from coming into your area right? So you have one patent application or filing or request or provisional patent. You don't have IP. The IP question is not about IP because you don't have it. Qualcomm has it. Texas Instruments has it. Okay. GM has it. You don't in your startup. Sorry. What they're really asking is why is this hard to do? Why can't Oren and Corey put together some money, marbles, and chalk and a piece of gum they had in their pocket and do the same thing? That's what they're asking.
0: You know, it does remind me, and I've seen those pitches, right? Where if somebody comes in, they're like, oh, well, and here's our IP, you know, blah, blah. We've got a patent and we're doing that. And it's like, you've got a patent and no money to defend it. So you really have nothing there. I think you need to reposition how you present that.
1: Yeah. I mean, do not come to me with your provisional patent filing or one patent. Again, I worked for years in IP. You can nod to it and you say, hey, look, we're starting to work on some defensibility. If you're familiar with Casper, Casper was going out at a billion and five once they filed and investors understood, oh, you have no IP. You buy these beds from the (laughs) same place that every other online place that buys beds from and you sew your label on it, boom, 1.5 billion to 500 million. So if you want a 75% reduction in your pricing or your valuation, sell people that you have IP and then, and sure, they'll give you an LOI. And I want to come back to LOIs. You know, they give you an LOI or talk to you about doing a deal but when they actually put diligence on it and an analyst on it and it shows up that you have a provisional patent filed or a patent, all that valuation is gonna go away. And look, a lot of people in finance think the goal is to get an LOI. I worked in a shop, we gave out LOIs like candy bars in Halloween, right? You want an LOI? Sure, we'll give you an LOI, hmm. right? 200 million, 250 million, 150 million, 500 million, we don't care, here's an LOI. Because we still got to do diligence, we still have to price the deal correctly. You want an LOI? Well, give me an LOI. Lock up the deal and then start working on pricing. So the goal is not to get an investor to say, I'm interested. The goal is not to get an investor to give you an LOI. It's not to get an investor just to value your IP highly or be very excited about your deal. The goal is to find an investor that you can close with and that you can live with. And that's finance. So even the pitch getting an investor finding an investor communicating the investor getting the investor interested that might be 40 or 45 or 55 percent of their journey will that guy close will that guy retrade you will that guy stretch you out so you have to close with him at a lower price than you ever envisioned taking and can you live with that guy for five years that's the other half of the deal and mm. so this is why finance is hard you know we're an investment bank and we get a lot of do it yourselfers come in. how hard is it to raise 10 million dollars oh it's not hard to raise $10 million. You can do that yourself. Go do it. You don't need us to raise the money. You need us to raise the money correctly to bring the right investors to the company so the money actually closes when you need it. So the term that you raise the money, when COVID comes along or 2008 comes along or you get sick comes along or competition comes along or whatever, they're not pulling out the contract and you miss some of your targets. And we have some companies like this. You miss your targets and they're ratcheting up. They're getting back yep. pieces of the company. They're kicking you out of the company, out of the CEO position, off the board you know you've been running the company for seven, eight, 10, 12 years you know all the employees love you the customers love you you miss some numbers you're terminated and you're now the marketing manager at the company you started then you find out
0: why investment banks exist
1: that from happening
0: hmm that's the biggest pitch I've ever heard for why to use an investment banker.
1: Look, and in some parts of the market, and probably a lot of people listening to this, sorry to cut you off, Corey, an investment banker or a broker or intermediary isn't appropriate. And if you hire me, you can come say, hey, we'll pay your $250,000 fee. You go raise us $15 million in venture capital. My answer to that is no. Why? Not that I can't do it. The venture capital won't pay me a fee. Mm. They literally, we'll say, here's the $15 million LOI, a definitive agreement, something we can close on. No fees paid to brokers. You guys deal with it right? Mm -hmm. If you promise your broker's fees, go deal with that on your own. We're not paying. Of the 15 million we're giving you, we want $15 million, not one piece of chewing gum less to go into the company. We're not paying the guys who helped you. That's your job to figure that stuff out. So I won't get involved because I can't get paid. Now I'll help you in other ways, but the investment banks or intermediaries are useful in some markets and venture capital and seed. They can give you the advice and the material and the understanding and the know-how and the models and the pitch, but they can't get paid, so you sort of have to navigate where and how you get advice.
0: Can we talk about Casper? Because you brought that up as an example, and that's something I often use. I say, this company Casper went and wrapped a fancy purple logo and some incredible marketing around a foam mattress, something that's been around since like the 50s or whenever in the hell they came out and said, oh, let's sleep on this, a foam mattress. And they created a very valuable company. Now, albeit, you could argue, and from your example, did they dupe investors in the sense that they oversold themselves, overpitched themselves, and were able to get a valuation from private money that was way more than what was true. And they were able to lean on what they considered IP and did the private investors. I mean, they're writing big checks into valuations like that. So they're institutions. Where did they go wrong? And what do you think Casper did right?
1: Yeah. Here's a lesson from Casper. New sales channel, which was direct to consumer, right? So they got in a new sales channel and they got traction investors will pay you will invest on traction right so clear traction big market understandable and scalable cost of customer acquisition in a new channel boom you can raise 100 200 million dollars that's what they did right again direct to consumer at that point was a new channel scalable so they could place ads they had a model that said you pour marbles in the top and money comes out the bottom you put mm-hmm. wood chips in the top and money comes out the bottom of this machine so they built a machine that appeared scalable they got traction right and they said these are the things that are going to happen next quarter and those things happen these are things that are going to happen the following quarter and they're relatively small and those things happen that's where money flows to okay new channel built the machine they performed quarter over quarter in a large market easy to understand five things casper did right
0: mm. I'm going to jump around here and I think you make a huge point there is that that traction and then also being able to demonstrate and prove out your unit economics. You pour 200 million bucks in this and it's 98% is going to go to sales and marketing and we're going to turn that 200 into 500 or 200 into a billion kind of thing. That's the economic model an investor wants to see.
1: Yeah, I think just to fill in, you know, we're going to pour $200 million into this machine. On the other side of the machine is Nirvana, is Hocus Pocus, is the dark side of the moon is Narnia, right? There's something magical, mystical, never before seen on the other side of this machine. And that's what investors will pay you for. I mean, think about it this way, Casper. Maybe this is their log line or their tagline. Casper, a better Theranos.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, stir the pot. I like it. Okay. If we're to take this back, and I mean, what they were able to do was get a lot of hype around their story. They were able to raise a lot of money. And there was Narnia behind the economics as well. When a CEO and their management team goes in to raise money, and they do a good pitch, the investors are interested, and they say, hey, Kate, we'll follow up. How do you start to build tension and how do you maintain that relationship so you actually get your term sheets and you actually get yourself into diligence? And if you're really good, you actually get yourself into a bidding war where you've got two VCs or two financiers looking to bid you up and put money into you. How do you build that kind of momentum in your financing?
1: I mean, listen, for most of the ding-dongs on this podcast, including me and you, okay, a bidding war is not going to happen today, right? COVID. But... A bidding war is going to happen. So that's confusing because I said it's not going to happen. And then I said it is going to happen. It's not going to happen because you're not Facebook. Corey, I'm not Facebook. You're not Facebook. Probably the person on the other side of my voice here is not Facebook. That's where the bidding wars happen. There's so much traction. There's such a new channel. Things are moving so fast that people have to have a bite of it. Very few bidding wars actually happen. But bidding wars happen every day. In every deal that I'm in, a bidding war happens because you create it. So ultimately, you have to create a market and then sell into the market. The reality is, if you're going out for finance and you're listening to the sound of our voice, there is likely a limited or no market for your deals. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't investors. There's probably 500 investors, 350, who would consider what you're doing. not looking for it. They're not searching for it there's no searchlight looking for your deal. It's not that they wouldn't invest in it. They just kind a market for it. So 12 Jiffy Lubes in downtown Los Angeles, that is a deal people are looking for. Okay. And so there's a market for that deal, for your SaaS company, for your real estate development project, for your dating site, for grandmothers, whatever, for your breathing devices, you know, that assist with COVID ill patients, for your pharmaceutical project, for your medical device, for your Accounting services. There just isn't a market for that deal, but you can make a market for that deal. You can find 20 or 30 firms that are casually interested. And this goes back to your question. When somebody is interested, you don't become fanatical or desirous or needy of working with them. You work them sequentially through an investment process alongside other firms. This is the paramount mistake. Whether you've been doing this for 20 years, Unless you are diligent, you'll still make this mistake. When an investor says, yes, I love this, I'm interested. You don't say, great, let's start working on a deal. You say, okay, that's a good start. You have to find multiple investors interested in the deal. I would say almost never do we see a single interest investor deal close or close at a good price. All
0: right. You nail down a potential investor. They say, you know, I like this. We're potentially interested. And then you're going to leave that meeting. You say, let's work on a deal. How do you tactfully place it that I've got others already looking? So well, you guys are going to shitter get off. have if to shitter can. get off the point. Yeah, There's I no know. way to tactfully do that.
1: There's no way to do that. If you say, Hey, I've got other people looking. Most of the people I know that are professionals will say, great. You know, if you've got other people, don't worry about me. So I would not play that card. I would not hold. I have other people over their head. What you can do is use the time frame. And that's what pitch anything is all about. Frames, the power frame, the time frame, the intrigue frame. And so seeing the world of finance in terms of frames. So it is not that you would say, I have other investors. You would say, for example, if you were an early stage company, you'd quite simply say, hey, look. We're an early stage company, we've got five engineers, we're focusing on building product. You say you're an early stage investor, you've done these five or seven or 15 or 25 other early stage deals, you know what it's like, right? Early stage companies should not be about raising capital, they should be about building product. Now this is the moral authority frame. So if we were already in your portfolio, you would not want me, the head engineer, the lead programmer and the person directing product development and the CEO spending two months raising money, right? Because you know that's a huge distraction. You would say, Warren, you have 30 days to go raise $500,000. That's plenty of time. Otherwise, just get back to building product and we'll continue to fund the deal. That's what you would say. And in the same way, I would say that you would set aside about 30, 35 days to raise the money. If you truly are an early stage investor, you would agree that's the right time frame to get this done. What are your thoughts on that? And they will either say, oh, no way we could make an investment in." 30 days. Okay, then you aren't an early stage investor. I don't know what you are, but you're confusing me. That's the moral authority frame, that's time frame, breaking the power frame. Right. And so these are ways to clearly, honestly, with your value system, with integrity, communicate to an investor that you have other options, certainly without saying, I have other options. Mm-hmm. Make it about the time frame.
0: You know, that brings me to another point that I really enjoyed about the book, Pitch Anything. I think you're a pioneer of this, of weaving aspects of neuroscience into actual capital market strategy. And I think when you talk about that framing, and it is part of that, it's part of how does the brain work and how do you leverage the aspects of even social dynamics to stay within your integrity, but also demonstrate or lever your control.
1: Yeah, so I think this boils down into the intrigue frame. Most people who are entrepreneurs, managing good companies, CFO, and they're in this analyst frame or this analyst mindset don't truly understand, I don't want to use big words, neuropsychology, neuroscience, but really fundamentally how information flows through the brain. The investor, the buyer is not looking for the information that you think they're looking for the information you have is used to satisfy intrigue they have about your space, about making money, about the industry and change. So really the pitch isn't about what you have, it's about how things are changing. That's what people are interested in, okay? Certainly, I mean, in our society now, I mean, it's a joke. Everything's changing, right? Succeed abroad, face masks, respirators, vaccines, the economy, tariffs, isolation. I mean, everything in every single industry has changed, maybe except for Legos. Okay? Hmm. That's what they're interested in. Intrigue. That's what gets people's attention. That is what makes people want to invest. The information you have does not make them want to invest. That's how information gets to the mind. The information you have about your company, about your financial model, about your traction, about your growth, about the capital, about the use of funds, how you're going to use the money, how you're going to grow the company, what your pro forma is, your exit strategy. All that is to satisfy the intrigue of the investor about what's changing and problems that have come up recently and how hard, how hard it is to solve those problems. So the step one in the pitch is to intrigue people about those things. Then the things you have in the pitch satisfy the intrigue from the investor. And that's how you get to the money. Starting out by saying, we have, our customers are, this is our product. This is our value proposition. Most of those deals don't get funded because they don't trigger the neuroscience, neuropsychology, the psychology, the desire and the wanting of the investor for that information. It just gives them the information. I would sum it up like this, and this is what Pitch Anything, the book, really breaks down. People want what they can't have. People chase that which moves away from them, and people only value that which they pay for. And when you bake that into your presentation, into your pitch, into your meeting, into your deal, any side fan, $500,000 to $50 million to $500 million, $500 billion, doesn't matter. When you bake that notion and people want what they can't have, people chase that which moves away from them, people only value that which they pay for, then you can start moving towards a deal.
0: Man, what a mantra. What a mantra. And I do want to be respectful of your time as well. And I think... Instead of asking another question on that, I think we should probably wrap it up with that. I wish we could fast forward that to the beginning of this, but I will make mention of it in the intro. You also have another book, Flip the Script, which came out in, I think, the latter part of 2019. It's sales focused, but I think it builds off a lot of what you've done in Pitch Anything or what you wrote about in Pitch Anything. Where else can the listeners follow your work and any final thoughts for them?
1: Both those books, get Pitch Anything, it shows you what's possible. You read that book, your eyes will open. You go, I did not know this was possible. I didn't know this world and this approach existed. Then you move into Flip to Script, and those are scripts how to do the things that your eyes have just been open to are possible. So Pitch Anything, possibilities of what you can actually accomplish, skills, and the company you already have, Flip to Script, exact scripts to use how to do those things. They belong together.
0: Awesome. Oren, thanks so much for your time, man. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Corey. I really appreciate it. Very nice questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.